live from the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York. This is Radio Chatskin. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, in some areas of New York State, ambulance wait times are getting longer and longer. And some advocates say a lack of volunteers and funding shortfalls have thrown our EMS systems into a crisis. The New York State Association of Counties and a coalition of state lawmakers and other advocates have introduced a package of legislation to strengthen local EMS services. Radio Catskill reporter Marin Scotton speaks to Alex Rao, the EMS and 911 coordinator for Sullivan County, to discuss the state of local EMS services. Plus, we connect with the CEO of Wayne Memorial Hospital as they expand their in-house physician services. The folks behind the Farmhouse Project have opened the Black Walnut in Calicoon. Cultural reporter Valerie Manzi has more. And a new show on Radio Catskill about video game music and industry news, virtual soundscapes. First, the news. I'm from NPR News in Washington. I'm Corva Coleman. Former President Donald Trump is in a New York City courtroom. A judge has just ruled that his criminal trial will start on March 25th. Trump was charged last year by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg for allegedly falsifying business documents in order to conceal an affair. Speaking before he went into the courtroom last hour, Trump denied the allegations. Legal scholars said they don't understand it. There's no crime. And there was no crime here at all. But the Manhattan District Attorney's Office says it has new evidence against Trump that strengthens the fraud case against him. Authorities in Kansas City, Missouri, say one woman was killed and 21 other people were wounded in a mass shooting yesterday. Some of the gunshot victims are children. An estimated one million people had turned out to celebrate the Super Bowl-winning Kansas City Chiefs when gunfire broke out. Kansas City police have detained three people in the case. Officials have not yet said what the motive for the shooting may be. Vice President Harris is in Munich for a series of high-level meetings with foreign leaders this week. Her trip comes as the White House aims to draw a contrast on foreign policy between President Biden and Donald Trump. NPR's Asma Khalid has more. The vice president intends to underscore the importance of U.S. leadership and alliances, but she faces a daunting task to convince European leaders that America remains a dependable ally, despite some evidence to the contrary. Republican leaders in the House of Representatives have all but nixed billions of dollars of aid Ukraine needs to continue its fight against Moscow's invasion. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is among the leaders the vice president will meet with while she's in Munich. The the Biden administration has insisted it'll back Ukraine for as long as it takes, but it's not clear how it can do that without help from Congress. Asma Khalid, NPR News, Munich. Stocks open mixed this morning after the Commerce Department reported a bigger-than-expected drop in retail sales last month. NPR Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose about 190 points in early trading. Retail spending fell by eight-tenths of a percent last month, led by a steep drop in auto sales. Forecasters had expected some pullback in January after a strong holiday shopping season. Spending at gas stations was down last month thanks to falling gasoline prices, but spending at grocery stores, department stores, and restaurants was up. Consumer spending has been a primary driver of strong economic growth in the U.S. The U.K. and Japan have not performed as well. Government scorekeepers say Britain's economy shrank in October, November, and December for the second quarter in a row. Japan's economy also contracted at the end of last year, and Japan lost its position as the world's third largest economy, falling into fourth place behind Germany. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks remain mixed on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrials are up 160 points. The Nasdaq is down 35 This is NPR. Some formerly incarcerated people are unable to find stable employment in their first year after release. But a Syracuse nonprofit is looking to change that. As Ava Pukach of member station WRVO reports, they're teaching them how to be line cooks. The Center for Community Alternatives program teaches people like Lorenz Coker-Hawkins the ins and outs of working in a kitchen. When you're a felon, you don't know, you don't really know your opportunities or what, what's out there. The program offers training in food management and provides a stipend and bus pass at the end of every week. Chef Joseph Balecki says the ultimate goal is to get participants into full-time jobs. Recidivism, uh, 50% of people are likely to go back within five years. You can cut that in half with a full-time job. But even equipped with skills, there are other barriers to employment like transportation. In Syracuse, some buses stop running before a kitchen staff can head home for the night. For NPR News, I'm Ava Pukach in Syracuse, New York. 
National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is scheduled to privately brief some members of Congress today. That's because Russia is developing a space-based nuclear capability that has the potential to threaten the U.S. and its allies, according to a source familiar with the matter. The Israeli military says it has entered a hospital in the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus. The Israeli military had ordered thousands of Palestinians sheltering there to leave, but authorities say there is nowhere left to go. Yesterday, the Israeli military and Hezbollah militants in Lebanon traded fire. One Israeli soldier was killed. Eight others were wounded. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The New York State Association of Counties has released a package of legislation titled Rescue EMS to strengthen local emergency medical services in New York State. With ambulance wait times longer than ever before and a lack of EMS volunteers, the Association of Counties, along with a coalition of state lawmakers and advocates, designed the legislation to help EMS services emerge from what they're calling a state of crisis. Radio Catskill reporter Marin Scotton spoke to Alex Rao, the EMS and 911 coordinator for Sullivan County, to discuss the state of local EMS services and whether the rescue EMS legislation put forward by the New York State Association of Counties will be effective in addressing the challenges faced by the EMS system in Sullivan County. Last week, the New York State Association of Counties, also known as NISAC, released a package of legislation with the goal of strengthening emergency medical services in the state of New York. The legislation was designed to address the lack of volunteers, funding, and resources that has seriously impacted the state's EMS services. Titled Rescue EMS, the package includes bills that would allow local governments to create and fund countywide EMS services, provide financial incentives to EMS volunteers, as well as a bill that would formally recognize EMS as an essential service in the state among other changes. Today, we are joined by Alex Rao, the EMS and 911 coordinator for Sullivan County, to discuss the state of local EMS services and whether the rescue EMS legislation put forward by NISAC will be effective in addressing the challenges faced by the EMS system in Sullivan County. So this piece of legislation was put forward to fund shortfalls that have put the EMS system into crisis in the state of New York. Can you kind of describe what things have been like for EMS specifically in Sullivan County over the last couple of years? I think it's, um, you know, it, it's taken 50 to 60 years for EMS to get to where it is today, um, which, you know, is, is struggling. I mean, uh, EMS is on life support, not only in Sullivan County, but statewide. Um, you know, and it's not, it's not only funding. It's also um, just changing the, 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 the dynamic of the system. Um, you know, uh, we've, Historically in Sullivan County, it's been a volunteer EMS system. We have one commercial service, which um, handles uh, kind of the center of the county. But, um, you know, a lot of it was recruiting and retaining um, volunteers with, uh, you know, uh, challenges in people's lives and, and having to work multiple jobs or not being able to stay at home, um, not working where they live. So they're out of town most of the day, so they can volunteer in their local hometown. So, and the funding. I mean, so it's, it's been a kind of a, an imperfect storm, I guess, if you would, as mm-hmm. to, um, how EMS has gotten here, but it is challenging. Um, you know, I'm happy to say that, um, over the last few years, we've been kind of chipping away and believe it or not, uh, even through COVID, we started to see a rise of our volunteer community, um, and people coming out to volunteer a little bit more. So, you know, uh, last year we, uh, EMS in Sullivan County took in about 60 new members. Wow. Um, and, you know, our challenge now is looking at how do we retain those members? So, you know, recruitment may necessarily not be the problem. It may be the retention part portion is how do we keep them uh, in the system and continue to keep their interest and develop them and help them grow as um, emergency services providers so that's something we're focusing on. I think this uh, rescue EMS package, the legislation that's being proposed by NISAC and, you know, in the governor's budget, I mean, it's certainly um, 
going to help. And again, um, you know, if we can't um, sustain the volunteer sector of EMS, and I think it's very important that we continue to support our volunteer sector. But I think these bills give uh, municipalities a mechanism to um, be able to supplement the EMS system and provide services, um, you know, creating special tax districts to help fund DMS, um, you know, statewide and even here in Sullivan County, you know, we see law enforcement is funded with tax dollars. Our fire service is funded with tax dollars. And in many, many, many cases, EMS is not funded, period. So a lot of ambulance corps rely on donations, um, billing. So some of them have gone to a soft billing, um, model where they'll bill folks uh, that have insurance, but they won't, uh, you know, they won't aggressively pursue people that may not. Um, you know, they're trying to not strain or, or strap uh, patients, but, uh, you know, they are billing insurance companies and trying to make ends meet and provide the service with the funding they receive from billing. So again, you know, um, and, and obviously the more calls you get, the, um, the higher your revenue would be. So, you know, having a, a municipal model where, you know, a county can help raise funds to help supplement some of those agencies or even provide the service themselves, um, I think is going to be a, a win-win for the community. Right. And so you just, you just mentioned a couple aspects there, but what are some of the other bills put forward that could be the most influential in creating change? Well, there's also a bill for um, something called treatment in place, um, which authorizes reimbursement if an ambulance were to come to someone's home. Um, the way the, the law reads today in Department of Health regulations, if we come uh, as an EMS provider, we come to your home, our, our only mechanism is to either refuse to go to the hospital or we take you to the hospital. There's no, there's no kind of in-between. Um, so by authorizing uh, reimbursement for treatment in place, it would allow for a, a mechanism where EMS uh, EMTs can come to someone's home. Um, they can treat because not all emer- not all calls are emergencies, and they don't all have to go to the emergency room. So it would give us an opportunity to treat folks in place. Um, it would provide a reimbursement mechanism where an ambulance corps could bill uh, the insurance company, so they get um, you know some uh, revenue for that. And um, it you know reduces the amount of uh, congestion in our emergency rooms. Uh, hospitals are faced with you know a lot of the same challenges of um, lack of personnel and rising costs. So allowing us to treat folks in place, um, you know, I think could go a long way as well. And you mentioned that the biggest challenge isn't necessarily recruiting workers, but retaining workers. And I'm sure this is something you're trying to figure out. But what are some of the steps or necessary aspects needed in retaining workers, what would you like to see as far as resources? So the number one thing I think that that um, bodes to retention is leadership. So the uh, leadership in organizations, um, you know, oftentimes in the volunteer system, and again, the way it's been for the last 50 years, has been the person generally that does the most calls, um, gets voted in and becomes the leader of those organizations. Um, and and they're great people. Don't get me wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, but unfortunately, you know, today we have to look at EMS as, and I, I hate to say this, but we have, we have to look at it like a business, right? So you've got personnel that, you know, some are volunteer, some are paid. Um, and, uh, yeah, you have to manage it like a business. You have to, um, you know, pay close attention to your revenue, uh, streams, um, and and it's becoming a full-time, um, almost a full-time responsibility to administer a an EMS agency. So, you know, having the right leadership, someone that can, you know, manage um, people and keep them motivated, um, providing uh, training because people join ambulance corps because they, too, want some um, just self-growth and, and personal growth. So it's important to feed uh, their need for learning more. So providing education, very training. And then, you know, lastly on the retention piece, I think is um, again, some legislation that was proposed um, by the governor, by NISAC is um, increasing the uh, uh, personal income tax credit. Uh, currently 
If you're a volunteer firefighter or ambulance worker, you currently receive a $200 tax credit um, on your on your uh, income taxes, but they're looking to raise that um, up to $400, which again, every little bit helps. I think that's uh, that definitely incentivizes some folks. And uh, there is uh, two years ago, they put in a uh, a property tax credit that people can take advantage of. Uh, people volunteer, firefighters, and ambulance workers. And, um, you know, I think incentivizing through those type of mechanisms will help with retention as well. Mm-hmm. Was there anything missing from the legislation that you think could have a big impact? Um, you know, I think the, the legislation that was proposed, um, it, it's something that the various organizations, lobbying organizations, uh, associations that, um, that um, promote EMS, uh, NICEVARA, the New York State Volunteer Ambulance Rescue Association, um, there's a group called Onion, which is um, a, a united group which uh, deals with commercial EMS. These are some of the, you know, these these uh, items of legislation have been things that we've been pushing for years. And, um, you know, I, I mean, there's always room for improvement, but I think, you know, it's important that we focus on the ones and, and we're finally, you know, we're hopefully getting close to a touchdown on these. And mm-hmm. I think it would, um, you know, they're going to go a long way and, in helping, again, municipalities and EMS services um, gain some traction and hopefully, you know, start to reverse the trajectory of, of where EMS is going. So mm. um, we're looking forward to that. The legislation obviously highlights a lot of the challenges the EMS system and workers face. And I can imagine it's been kind of a tough few years with the pandemic. What are you most proud of in the way EMS providers in Sullivan County have handled these challenges? Um, no doubt I'm most proud, um, and, and this is from someone who's been a, a volunteer for 33 years in EMS. Um, I'm very proud of the volunteer sector in Sullivan County. Um, they've really stepped up even when we're our, our sole commercial agency has been struggling as well due to, you know, some workforce challenges and and so forth. Um, you know, I'm very proud of, of how the, the volunteer sector has kind of stepped up, uh, in fact, covering uh, many of the areas and helping each other out. Um, you know, without, um, you know, without that, I mean, it's truly neighbors helping neighbors. And, you know, some ambulance corps are actually handling more calls outside of their district than inside their district. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, it's great to see EMS come together. You know, with that are some challenges because as you wait for an ambulance to come from a neighboring town, obviously the response time is a little bit longer. But nonetheless, um, the fact that, you know, these ambulance, so some ambulance corps that have, you know, traditionally struggled have actually stepped up and they're, they're doing better and, and running stronger than ever. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. If there are folks out there that, um, have ever thought of volunteering or have a little bit of time on their hands each week to, um, you know, give to their community, um, perhaps look to join a volunteer ambulance corps, look to join your local volunteer fire department. Um, it's a, it's an amazing feeling to help folks. And, uh, you know, and again, there's a lot of personal development, camaraderie, um, socializing that comes from belonging to these organizations. It's a, it's a true, uh, feeling of community. And, um, I encourage anyone that's even thought about it, just call, just speak to your local ambulance corps. Um, you know, see what they have to offer. Um, see if you can get something out of it as far as education, training, and, um, add some personal growth. And if it's, uh, you know, if it fits you, then, uh, sign up. That was Alex Rao on NISAC's rescue EMS legislation and its potential impact on EMS in Sullivan County. In Liberty, I'm Marin Scotton for Radio Catskill. We'll take a break, and when we come back, more healthcare news. We go live to Wayne County to chat with Wayne Memorial Hospital CEO Jim Petinato. This is Radio Chatskill. Last year, over 100,000 people died from drug overdoses driven by fentanyl, and the fastest-growing group is under 19. Fentanyl is the number one cause of overdose in Sullivan County. Whether you're a parent or an educator, you can have the right conversation now to potentially save a kid's life. Protect kids from the dangers of fentanyl. More information and resources at naturalhigh.org. Paid for by Catholic Charities of Orange, Sullivan, and Ulster. The mixtape's all about eclectic music, compiled with love, like an old-school mixtape. 
I'm Jason Tuga, and every Friday night, it's my aim to bring you something special, a unique mix of music you wouldn't hear anywhere else. You can count on hearing a diverse range of artists, eras, genres, and vibes. The Mixtape, an hour of music assembled by me just for you. Friday night. Friday night at 7 on Radio Catskill. You're listening to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Wayne Memorial Hospital in Honesdale is the heart of the Wayne Memorial Health System, which includes a nursing home in Waymart, Wayne Woodlands Manor, its own foundation, and five outpatient sites across three counties. Wayne Memorial is the largest private employer in Wayne County with more than a 1,000 full and part-time employees. And we should note Wayne Memorial is a financial supporter of WJFF. In the last decade, Wayne Memorial has become a certified primary stroke center, a level four trauma center, opened a cardiac catheterization laboratory, and built a state-of-the-art patient tower boasting 50 private patient rooms. Most recently, Wayne Memorial began expanding its in-house physician services. And here to tell about all of the all of these developments is CEO Jim Petinato. Mr. Petinato, good morning. Good morning, Tim. How are you? I'm good, although cardiac catheterization laboratory is a bit of a tongue twister this early in the morning for me, but <laughs> thank you for joining <laughs> us. Um, you know, we talked about expanding your in-house physician services. Can you talk a little bit about what these new services are and, and how Wayne Memorial decided to hire their own specialist physicians? Sure, sure. Uh, every three years, uh, we do what's called a community health needs assessment. And we go out and we survey uh, our entire coverage area, and we hit targeted groups as well as the general public. And we campus for uh, what the community really identifies as needs in the area. Where are they having to, to really leave the area to get services? Where there might be gaps in services? And uh, we, you know, collate that data uh, survey over survey. We also look at the patients that are presenting to our hospital, and we look at the number of times that we have to transfer patients to other facilities for specialty care. So those two things really are looked at very closely on an ongoing basis. And uh, we really came to some pretty uh, significant conclusions with regards to the, the data collected about what specialties we really needed to focus on. And uh, the drive to improve and increase the physician coverage and specialties was driven from those um, those those assessments and those evaluations. The biggest one that had come out first was uh, for inpatient uh, gastroenterology. We have very good uh, community gastroenterologists uh, that have very successful practices in many of the areas that we cover, and um, they they do a great job. And, and the outpatient care is is really um, phenomenal. But there really was still a strong need, for example, for gastroenterology to be part of the inpatient medicine component as well. And uh, that was one of our first recruits uh, upon my coming into this position. And uh, we were fortunate enough to find a very talented individual, um, Dr. Clifford Carroll, uh, who has been servicing our hospital now uh, for over, you know, coming up on two years, actually, and uh, doing just a great job. And it has allowed us to not have to transfer patients to other facilities when patients present here at Wayne with their uh, GI um, issues. It also has been a good handoff back to the community providers. Um, we don't always expect patients to leave their 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 doctor, uh, so we you know make sure that records get sent back and that handoff occurs so that patients can continue to resume uh, with the provider of their choice. Um, the next one that really kind of stuck out, we have unfortunately a lot of cardiac disease in the area, which was really what brought on our cardiac catheterization lab. But you have to look at the other diagnoses that kind of go with that condition. And um, kidney disease was, you know, definitely hitting the top of the charts. And in, um, probably about a year and a half ago, we were able to successfully recruit a full-time nephrologist, uh, Dr. Syracuse Anali. And he is based out of the hospital, and he is treating um, diseases of the kidney. He also helped us start our um uh, kidney dialysis program, which we only do on a inpatient basis. There are plenty of providers in the community that, or sites, excuse me, that provide outpatient dialysis. But when patients are sick enough that they need to come into the hospital, we, um, you know, have those services available and patients no longer need to be transferred out. And um, once you kind of start down that kidney uh, disease process, the next logical step is uh, urology. 
and uh, the area has been in a, a very much a, a deficit for urological services. Pretty much folks um, from, from all of our coverage area have to travel upwards of an hour, sometimes an hour and a half to get to their urologist. We were very successful here starting January 2nd to acquire a urology uh, lead, Dr. Um, Donald Priate, and he's well-known in the uh, Lackawanna County area and, and, and Wayne County as well, has joined our medical team here at the hospital, and we started office hours on January 2nd for that service. And we are accepting patients from all over. Uh, that need is so great in even surrounding counties that, frankly, right now we have people traveling to us from you know two counties away simply because we have open appointments and we are rapidly expanding the urology staff and physicians. By the summer, we will have two full-time and three part-time urologists servicing patients here out of Wayne Memorial. And by the end of the year, probably one additional full-time urologist. We also um, you know, have done our, our best to advertise those services so that folks know where they can seek that care. And um, it's been probably one of the biggest struggles in getting the, the clinic up and running is just getting the word out and making sure patients know that they actually may have a closer option to receive the care from all board-certified physicians yeah, that must be, across all the specialties. Yeah, that must be a challenge as a small independent nonprofit in this rural area, getting the word out. Uh, and then letting folks know that these, these, you know, well-trained, uh, uh, physicians, uh, are right there. Uh, also in the community health needs assessment, I'm wondering if the challenge is also, um, looking at these other counties that are even more rural than Wayne County that to let folks know, hey, you don't have to go as far as Scranton or Allentown. You, you can come here. We actually, when we do the community health needs assessment, we do also target some, some focus groups to actually get that outreach and get information and feedback from those areas. While we predominantly are, are, you know, when we consider our primary and secondary service area, there is overlap through uh, a lot of community groups that we work with. Many of our leadership team are part of some of those uh, community groups. And we're, we try our best, too, to make sure that we're getting that information out, that we're soliciting folks from really maybe a little bit outside of that coverage area to uh, to get information to them and, and make them aware of the services that we have here at Wayne. But you're right, they, they really don't have to travel very far. They're getting, again, board-certified, well-talented specialists, uh, and uh, it is really just it, it's a, a gem, in, gem in the rough here to be able to have it in a, in a local community. We're very proud of the doctors we've been able to recruit, and I'd like to say it's really a partnership with these physicians. While we're out recruiting, they're as much wanting to work with us. Uh, one thing we have done with the physicians is we really give them a lot of independence in how they practice, how they run their offices, what their what their preferences are. And uh, I think being a, a small independent health system, we're able to offer a lot of flexibility to those physicians that they sometimes may not always get when they're part of a much larger health system. Yeah, I was going to ask about recruiting some of these uh, physicians. Is is that uh, something that is attractive to them, coming to some place that is maybe a little smaller, gives it, gives them a little bit more independence, and, and then they're more willing to, to work there? It, it actually is. It, it, we pretty much hear that on almost all of the interviews of, of providers that are coming from large health systems. And those large health systems obviously have a lot of benefits, a lot of things that maybe that Wayne Memorial could not offer, but the one thing that we really do well at is allowing the physicians to work with their patients, spend time with their patients, and practice medicine the way they want to practice without necessarily having to hit a, a timer and being sure that, you know, maybe it's a 10-minute you know, appointment or a 15-minute appointment, all-inclusive, and, and they have to be on the next one. We, we, don't, we don't treat our physicians that way. We work with the physicians based on the specialty and really try to make sure that the patients are getting the attention and the care they need. And we really let the physician drive that, drive that train. And uh, they set their schedules. They determine how many patients they're going to see. Uh, obviously, it has to be a, you know, something that you know, is, is, is a win-win on both sides. No one can stay in business if, if, the, if the productivity is not there. But I have to be honest, the physicians are very conscious of that. And, and they really do work well to, to hit those numbers um, to be sure that financially we can sustain this, but they, it doesn't come at the cost of the patient. And, and that is really one of the biggest attractions. Um, we tell them that, you know, they could be a small fish in a big pond. 
they can be a really big fish in a small pond, and uh, that seems to be more attractive uh, to them in the decision-making process. Um, you've been in this role for a, a couple of years now, um, and it looks like there's been a lot of growth, as we mentioned in the introduction. Um, what are what are some of the challenges you've you faced, but what are some of the things that you're you're most proud of, proud of being able to accomplish? Well, I think the the biggest thing that we're the most proud of is that we've been able to bring these services to our local community and have patients. Uh, there, there's no greater reward than than having a patient come out of their appointment, and uh, I've had an opportunity to to work. Uh, on the on the units that we have opened here um, and participate hand-in-hand hand with some of the doctors. But when you have the patient come out to the desk and say, I am so happy that I was able to get the service here. I'm so happy with the service I received. Um, you know, it, it's just a, a quick verbal compliment that just goes a long way and, and tells us that we're on the right track and that they were they were overall happy. And I think, you know, that's, that's something we're proud of because that means our, our work and our effort is really being seen by the public and the patient's as being beneficial, as being needed and valued. The challenges, you know, um, to be honest, the, 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 the constant balancing of the books and third-party reimbursements um, continue to be a challenge. The uh, red tape regulation to get doctors onboarded with insurance carriers to even get paid for the care they provide. We frequently are found, we find ourselves in a situation where our doctors are providing care to patients that we're still in the process of onboarding with the insurance carrier. And uh, it's a very laborious process. Sometimes that could take up to 60 to 90 days with each new provider that we add. And then we have to go back and try to make collections on claims that we've already uh, put in or, or care that we've already provided because there was just a delay in getting those physicians credentialed at the insurance company level. Um, we have talked to legislators about trying to make some changes there. Um, understand that the insurers want to make sure their constituents are getting safe care, and there are steps and processes that have to be put in place. But just looking to see is there any any red tape that really could be cut out that patients don't have to um, wait for care or that the provider is not delayed in being compensated for the care that was provided. Yeah, um, Somewhere in there, there has to be a happy medium. Well, healthcare undergoing such radical changes, and you mentioned these, uh, you know, regulatory requirements, there's new technology, uh, changes to insurance, um, not to mention, you know, staffing challenges. We came out of a segment just before you talking about the EMS challenges here in New York State about um, the lack of folks who uh, may have volunteered, uh, and you know that 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 could be a crisis as well. You know, as part of trying to address some of these things, Wayne Memorial Health System is taking some steps to possibly acquire the Barnes Casson Hospital in Susquehanna County. Is that still in the initial phases, and and why is it important to to take this step? Yeah, it actually still is in its initial phases. Uh, maybe a little further than initial. We are up to. Uh, what we would call an agreement between both healthcare systems, uh, that agreement and review of that agreement in terms and conditions is in the hands of the uh, state attorney general right now for review and uh, to be sure that there's no uh, concerns over restriction of trade and, and, uh, and you know, um, uh, market considerations that might be um, not favorable to the, to the public. But it, both health systems are, you know, um, really coming together to really join forces in many ways to take care of patients that are in an overlapping service area to some degree. Uh, the Barnes Hospital, for example, um, is in Wayne County's, Wayne Memorial's secondary service area. Um, and some of their coverage area is in Wayne Memorial's secondary or primary coverage area. So there's a, there's a, a big stretch. There's 50 minutes between each facility and we seem to be kind of trying to serve similar patients. And we have another partner out there, and that's the Wayne Memorial Community Health Centers. They're the ones that are doing our primary care, um, OBGYN services, behavioral health, dental. And, um, you know, they're really the, 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 the forefront uh, in the community on the outpatient side. And they have practices in that Susquehanna County area where Barnes is. So we can provide some further assistance to patients, and patients could really benefit from all three of us kind of working together, uh, just even from uh, and, um, tr uh, information being moved through the electronic medical records and, and getting information to where the patient needs it at the time when they need it there. So a lot of good things happening, but right now we're, we're still in the process. But uh, 
I think it'll be a really good move for, for all three parties and the patients that are in all of those service areas to be able to have some, some various options for care, but know that that care is somewhat coordinated too. Uh, before we go, uh, another thing on the horizon for Wayne Memorial, possibly robots, robotic surgery? So, yes, uh, we acquired a uh, board-certified uh, general surgeon, uh, Dr. Jennifer Rodriguez, uh, last August. So she's been with us now on a full-time basis since last summer. And um, she is robotics trained and has been um, talking up and helping train and develop our staff here uh, in the in the uh, um, robotic surgery arena. And staff has done a really good job with uh, learning the lessons they need to, taking the information from her. We've been doing some training with the vendor um, so that we can get a good feel for what that will look like at Wayne Memorial. And uh, it's really kind of a there's a debate whether robotic surgery is better than laparoscopic surgery or in conventional surgery. And I think each come with its pluses and minuses. And many physicians have strong opinions in, in, in different camps. Uh, I think what it comes down to is what is between the physician and the patient about what the best course of action and the best treatment plan and modality is. And all Wayne Memorial wants to do is be able to offer all those platforms to patients so that they do have options, they do have choices, and that we have a general surgery department that can do robotics as well as laparoscopic and conventional to really address the variety of patients' wishes and, and needs in the community. And frankly, general surgery is one that needs to support many times a lot of these specialties that we are bringing on. Um, so they have also become much busier and really proud. We have um, right now on our team, we have five general surgeons between full and part-time who help cover our hospital 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they assist with our, our trauma center status as well and helping care for the trauma patients that do wind up staying here at Wayne Memorial. And really, they, they do an excellent job. The future is now. Um, we've been talking to Jim Petnato, the CEO of Wayne Memorial Hospital. To learn more about Wayne Memorial, visit WMH.org or the Facebook page, Wayne Memorial Hospital. Mr. Petnato, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you for your time and, and wishing you and, and the whole community uh, a safe, safe year. And uh, just uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to talk this morning. All right. We'll take a break. And when we come back, the Black Walnut, a new bar lounge in Calicoon, will have a profile from Valerie Manzi, our culture reporter, right after this. This is Radio Chatskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective. Located on Willow Wisp Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania, Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan, a publicly supported philanthropic institution, CFOSNY.org And from listeners like you, who donate at WJFFRadio.org Hi, this is Jeff. I'm your host on Radio Catskill's brand new show, Electric Mountain, bringing you the very best of electronic dance music from back in the day to today. As a special treat, I'll feature a guest DJ every week spinning a continuous set, bringing their unique style. Come dance with us each and every Saturday night from midnight to 2 a.m., kicking off on February 17th, only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Sean Lang and Chris Propelica started their lifestyle and home decor brand, The Farmhouse Project, over a decade ago. They recently opened a new venture, The Black Walnut. Culture reporter Valerie Manzi spoke to Sean Lang recently about it. Good morning, Sean, and welcome to Radio Chatskill. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yes. Well, uh, you, we have a lot to talk about because you've done a lot up here in the Catskills during your 11 years here. You've <laughs> started and thrived with your farmhouse project, the farmhouse project. Yes. And now you have a new endeavor called Black Walnut right in the center of Calicoon. Yes. Um, so we recently opened up Black Walnut by the Farmhouse Project. It's kind of our brick and mortar space under the umbrella of 
the Farmhouse Project, which is a company that we started um, when we moved up here. Um, and basically what it is is a, a mercantile um, that houses all of our products that we've been selling online for the past seven years. And all of our products are designed by us, and we make some of the items, and then we also partner with artisans that make them for us under our brand, The Farmhouse Project. So all of the homewares are exclusively made for us, so you can't find them anywhere else because we don't wholesale, so just in our shop in Calicoon and online. Um, and the product portion of our brand started in um, with my career. My background is in industrial design and product design um, in the city, working in the fashion, accessories, and home industry. Um, and I've always wanted to have my own collection, and moving up to the Sullivan Catskills inspired me to do that. And um, our homewares are based off of simple living, made in America, and entertaining at home. So that's kind of the basis of the product portion. And you said us and we, so who is we? So my other half, Chris, um, he is my husband, and uh, we moved up here together 11 years ago, and um, he is kind of um, the other half of the Farmhouse Project. Um, he still works full-time remotely, so he um, is focused on his career as well, but does help out as much as he can with everything that we do. Okay, and let's talk about the inspiration for the aesthetic choices you made. Yeah, so, you know, we've always wanted to open up a shop and, you know, the strategy was to focus on selling our products online just because we capture a bigger audience mm -hmm. and we ship all over uh, the country. And we just couldn't find the right space over the years. Um, but we kind of did dabble in hosting pop-up shops in towns within Sullivan County. And I thought it was a great strategy to kind of feel out what people are looking for and each town, but we always wanted to have something multifunctioning. So, you know, a home store, but also something else. And um, we love cocktails and we love entertaining. So it just made sense to have this kind of concept space of a little home shop, but also a cocktail bar. And the reason for that is, you know, you don't have to buy anything when you come in, but maybe you want a beer or a specialty cocktail or a cheese board, um, and you could sit on the vintage couches we have and just hang out and feel like you're in our house. You have many couches to be comfortable <laughs> on. So, um, and when I've been in there, I see people like really relaxing. Yeah, they don't want to leave, which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've made a, such a huge space, very cozy and inviting and warm, and it has history to it. Yeah, and, you know, the inspiration behind the the decor was to create a similar vibe as our house. Okay. Because the farmhouse project started about us renovating an old farmhouse. So we always wanted to create a space that um, you can't necessarily come to our house because it's not open to the public, but you could feel like you're in our living room and, you know, being treated like we're entertaining at home. The f little meals you serve there, bar food, but not ordinary bar food. It's all by local purveyors. Yeah. Um, you know, we opened in the middle of October, so... You know, getting, you know, super local ingredients is a challenge because we're coming off of this season. But um, we're serving uh, cheese boards, charcuterie boards, uh, microgreen salad, olives, um, small bites, but always focusing on the local purveyors throughout the Sullivan Catskills. And you have a mixologist? Yes. So Sean, the other Sean, um, is our bartender at Black Walnut. And he's actually a neighbor of ours in Hortonville. 
Um, we had met briefly a couple years ago when he found out that we were opening. He had kind of reached out and we connected and, um, you know, we share a similar passion of, of course, uh, local ingredients and agriculture and uh, farming up here, but also beautifully made cocktails with unique ingredients and friendly hospitality environment. So we hit it off right away and he's our neighbor and is also a dear friend to us. So he is behind the bar um, making the magic. <laughs> well, and he's now the town's friendly bartender. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. He... You did mention that you were planning also maybe mm. to open a restaurant. Yes. So the phase two of the space is we have about another 900 square feet um, wow. in the same space. It's blocked off, um, but we just started building out a small restaurant space. Um, and that will be a simple, small open kitchen and um, dining tables with the similar kind of moody vibe as the other space. Um, and the intention is to kind of partner with different chefs to come in and take over the space for a month or two or longer um, and have them kind of take ownership of um, doing beautiful dinners, similar to the dinners that we've done in the past um, outside. So kind of similar concept to that, but on a smaller scale. Okay. Well, you have uh, contributed a very great deal <laughs> in a relatively short period of time. So I wish you well. Thank you. And um, Black Walnut right on Main Street in Calico. Yes. Thank, thank you, you Sean. Much. Thank you. Culture reporter Valerie Manzi speaking to Sean Lang. More information at thefarmhouseproject.com or on their Facebook and Instagram social media. We'll take a break. And when we come back, a new show here on Radio Catskill debuting tonight called Virtual Soundscapes, where pixels meet melodies and controllers become conductors. We'll talk to the host, producer, and creator, Matt Hurtado, right after this. This is Radio Catskill. Donna Fellenberg here. This Saturday on Catskill Character, I'll be speaking with recording engineer and climate activist Gray Russell. Gray's story is all about rock and roll, having worked at the record plant in New York City with over 100 artists, and climate activism, from the New York Botanical Gardens to his last 20 years as the sustainability officer for the town of Montclair, New Jersey. That's Saturday, 10.30 on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Radio Catskill. We are debuting three new locally produced shows this week on Radio Catskill. Uh, check your email. You'll see what some of them are. Or listen right now because one of them is called Virtual Soundscapes with Matt Hurtado. It debuts tonight at 10. It's an hour of video game music and industry news. Matt will bring listeners the best music from your favorite games, composed and orchestrated music that crosses multiple genres. Plus, Matt will have weekly conversations with video game industry professionals. And joining us now, Matt Hurtado. Good morning. Morning, Tim. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Tell us about the um, the origination of this this idea for you to bring this music, which is a big part of video games, to our listeners. Well, I love video game music. I think it's, you know, with any good art form, music just really connects people and helps people connect. And one of the, my first memories is just playing video games with my grandmother the summer after my grandfather died and would sit there and listen to, you know, the soundtracks on the Super Nintendo and she'd be like, all right, honey, and her old Texas accent, are you ready to go on our next big adventure? And I just, you know, ever since then I was just hooked and I really thought it would be important to try to get more people just interested and connected and, you know, listening to the great music that video games have to oh, offer. Oh, that's a sweet story. Was, was Grandma a gamer? Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's the one that got me into it. <laughs> wow. I love it. Well, I mean, there are a lot of people into it. Just for context, uh, the video game industry had a huge year in 2023, billions of, uh, I'm sorry, uh, blockbuster titles selling millions of copies and billions of dollars. Global game revenue in 2023 was $227 billion. It's huge. And I think that maybe sometimes people forget about the music. It's in the background, but it's an integral part of these games. It is, yeah. And I mean, it can really elevate the experience. And the thing that's different about video games than movies that, you know, it's that music can dynamically change in the games reacting to what you're doing. And 
you know, I think it just really elevates the experience and makes you feel like you're there in the moment, and gives you that kind of perfect escapism. And do you think that the um, industry attracts the same type of composers and musicians uh, that movies do? And has it been? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of composers that that go, you know, back and forth, honestly. Um, Harry Gregson Williams, who did the Metal Gear Solid soundtrack, he does, you know, I think he does music for like the Star Wars TV shows on Disney Plus, too. And um, so there's a lot of crossover there. And does music um, help motivate you as you're gaming? Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or just doing anything, you know, like I know a lot of people that just listen to video game music when they're working out and then just like gives them that extra little boost or motivation to continue going on. So, yeah, we've got a sample of some of the music. What are we going to hear here? Um, it's going to be a track from Persona 5. It's a jazz, uh, it was like jazzy with vocal track um, called. Oh, my God, I forgot. <laughs> That's OK. Let's take a listen. Yeah. yeah. Searching all along, confessing while I Yeah, so that's Beneath the Mask from Persona 5. I think something, you know, Thane Peterson would be proud of. I was going to say <laughs> that I would not expect this type of music in a video game. And maybe I have a preconceived notion. I'm, you know, full disclosure, not a gamer. But, uh, yeah, like a really cool, like, soundtrack thing. I guess I'm expecting more heavy metal or blips and beeps. I mean, I think that those two definitely have their place in video games, too. But, you know, so many games are, come from different creators. And so many people can create games on their own now. And I think you know, having their own music in the game is really a way to elevate and tell their own stories further the way that they convey their storytelling. We're going to have to get you on Living Jazz with Thane. Okay. So. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> um, what are some of the favorite pieces of music that uh, you've come across uh, that you'll be showing on uh, showcasing on Virtual Soundscapes? So, you know, I told a story about my grandma. The first that game we were playing that summer was Final Fantasy 2, which was an SNES game. So the music, you know, it was still good back then, but like... Final Fantasy music is some of the best video game music that's ever been made. The composer for Final Fantasy has been the same for probably about 30 years now, Nobuo Umatsu. Um, and he's won multiple FM awards as well. Um, so I'll be playing music from Final Fantasy. You'll hear music from World of Warcraft. Jason Dole has requested music from Dragon Quest. So there's some of that in there. Um, so we'll get, you know, music from kind of all genres. Uh, but, you know, I'm trying to stick with mostly it's not not. I don't really want to play beep boops on the radio. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're finding the cool stuff. Yeah. But also as part of this show, you are interviewing industry professionals. Um, how do you go about uh, reaching out to them? And, and what, what is it that they bring to, to this show for you too? Um, so, yeah. So the, the cool thing about the video game industry is that it's very, very, it's a very small circle of people. I mean, there's a lot of game developers, but as you, as you move from, from job to job, which happens a lot in video games because of layoffs and other, you know, career growth and stuff, you meet just a ton of people. And all of these people are just at the top of their game all the time. And um, so it's just, you know, and, and they always have other people that they're like, oh, you you know this person, so you should meet this person because they, they can teach you this or they can, you know, want to talk to you about a job or whatever. Um, so a lot of the people I'm interviewing are people that I've worked with or people that I've just met at industry events that, you know, I think have really interesting insight to offer. Yeah, I, we, I don't think we said this. You work in the industry, yeah. uh, and so there's these connections, and it's a it's a tight knit community. That's uh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, who's this? Uh, we have an interview, a uh, sample of an interview from one of your shows. Who are we going to hear from here? Uh, so this is going to be Tim Webb. Um, he has been in the industry for probably twenty to thirty years now. He's worked on like weird old Spider Man games. He's worked in military VR, AR spaces, um, and so the clip we're about to hear is him talking about the future of the industry as he sees it and kind of you know with the layoffs and everything i think he has got a good perspective and outlook on things here what do you see the future of the industry or what are you most excited for to see happen in the next five to ten years oh man we're at such an interesting and it's both scary and fantastic uh point in the industry right now so the last three years um Really from 20 to 22, uh, sorry, 2020 to 2022, 
the game industry had this huge explosion of growth. Everybody was doing really well. There was a lot of money, a lot of projects. Um, because everybody's at home during the pandemic and, you know, you want to play games while you're at home. You want to kind of escape. And that was Tim Webb again. Yeah. Um, yeah, the layoffs, um, you know, there was a banner year we reported revenue wise in mm-hmm. 2023, but also there were over 10,000 job cuts across video game studios in 2023. A 6,000 game industry, gaming industry workers already laid off in 2024, according to PC gamer reporting. Um, so it, there are some headwinds here for the industry. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's super tragic. Uh, you know, you see it across the entire tech se- sector, but I think the thing, it, it's cyclical, right? It's, it's, we get these huge AAA games. They hire a bunch of people. The game gets released. It either does well or does poorly and then people get laid off. But I think pe- when those people get hired and they get laid off, they go on to, f- you know, they, they learn stuff and they go on to found their own creative projects and endeavors. And then you ca- kind of see cooler, smaller indie games coming out of that. So. You know, one of the things that you have been doing uh, as someone who works in the industry is also talking to the youth who may be interested in video gaming. In fact, right after this interview, you're heading across the street to talk to the Sullivan <laughs> County BOCES students uh, in their innovative design class uh, that there are a lot of them that are interested in video game and mm-hmm. video game industry. Well, you know, with the news of these layoffs, how do you sort of approach that with them and what kinds of advice do you give them about entering the field? Well, I think, you know, it's important to know that it's it's not just you don't have to be a billion dollar company to make a video game. And most people nowadays that are getting into the industry are making smaller indie games by themselves. And you can, you know, like the guy who made Minecraft is just one guy, right? Got bought by Microsoft for a billion dollars. Um, Undertale, one guy. Stardew Valley, one guy. So I just tell these kids, it's like, you know, they're already making these games. I've seen them. That's what I'm going to do today. They've been working on game projects. And so, you know, just keep up that creativity and that hard work. And, you know, we have a portfolio. So if you want to get into a bigger company, you can, but anyone can just go sell a game on steam. Yeah. I mean, there might be a, you know, a sleeper halo across the street there with these kids. Yeah. You don't know. Um, virtual soundscapes with Matt Hurtado debuts tonight on radio Catskill at 10 o'clock, an hour of video game music and industry news. Uh, listen at 90.5 FM or stream it live at WJFFradio.org. Hey, before we go, I got to ask, what was uh, grandma's favorite game? Final Fantasy 2. <laughs> <laughs> Did she kick some butt? Yeah. Yeah. She beat the whole thing. I watched her. <laughs> Matt Hurtado, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, we're looking forward to your show tonight. That's all for this edition of Radio Chat Skill. Um, tomorrow, we'll have a preview of another new show, which is debuting this weekend, Electric Mountain with Jeff Barnes. Tune in for that. And um, I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. We'll leave you with the jazzy music from one of the great video games. Come facing twilight Radio Catskill supporters include SUNY Sullivan, a community college in the Sullivan Catskills focused on preparing students for the future. More information at sunysullivan.edu. Livingston Manor, dining, shopping, and the arts at the Gateway to the Catskill Park. LivingstonManorNY.com. And listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. Hi there, this is Brian, host of The Secret Show. Friday nights at 9. I'll be playing a mix of indie, alternative, college, rock, and pop. Some new music and some old classics. That's The Secret Show, Friday nights at 9, only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. I'm Maria Hinojosa, this week on Latino USA. What happens when a transportation agency turns a residential neighborhood in Los Angeles into a ghost town? We find the families who are reclaiming these empty homes. The state is literally hoarding these houses that are empty while people are suffering on the streets. That's this week on Latino USA. Thursday afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, streaming online 
live at wjffradio.org. The forecast, snow showers this afternoon possible, high 37. And a few snow showers this evening, a low 27 with a high wind gusts. There's a wind advisory from 6 tonight until noon tomorrow. Wind gusts up to 50 miles an hour possible. High 36 tomorrow with sunshine and clouds mixed. This is Radio Catskill.